KBOO Portland. It's that time of the year again. It's time to support the causes that matter in our lives. It's time to give back to the organizations that give back to our communities all year round. Make KBOO a part of your Giving Tuesday plans and donate today at kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to 44321. Help KBOO get a strong start to the end of your fundraising season on Giving Tuesday, and the impact of your gift will be doubled. That's right. The generous support of KBOO member Jeff Sackett will match your donation this Giving Tuesday, dollar for dollar, up to $5,000. Check KBOO off your Giving Tuesday donation list right now at kboo.fm slash give, or text KBOO to 44321. co-host of Trans Positive here on KBOO Community Radio, and I'm also the current president of the Board of Directors of KBOO. Uh, before we start the show today, I just want to remind you that today is Giving Tuesday. Um, if you can, please go to kboo.fm give and give. At KBOO, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. This Giving Tuesday, your friends here at KBOO Community Radio want to remind you that generosity has the same power. Join thousands of KBOO supporters from all around the world, and let's rally together to build stronger communities. Our goal for this year is $70,000 for our end-of-the-year membership drive. We are community-funded, and we need your support to get there. So please just go to kboo.fm slash give, or text kboo to this number, 44321. And now on to our show. Good evening, you're listening Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Um, December 1st is World AIDS Day, and every year we do a show with uh, the December 1st writers, um, in honor of the memory of those who have passed away from HIV, as well as those who are still surviving, to um, celebrate their lives. And tonight, we're also very honored to have with us uh, several long-term survivors uh, who are going to be sharing their stories, as well as members of the December 1st Writers Collective who are going to be sharing poetry and prose. Um, around the theme of World AIDS Day. 
So first I'd like to go around and introduce everyone. We have we have six guests with us here tonight on Transpositive. And I'm gonna start with Craig. Craig, could you please introduce yourself? Sure, I'm Craig Collins. Um, I consider myself a long-term uh, survivor of AIDS um, and HIV. And um, I'm also the program coordinator of the Aging Well program through Cascade AIDS Project. And we're a community that works with long-term HIV survivors, those who live with HIV and those who have been affected by HIV. And as a long-term survivor, uh, those of us who are um, HIV negative also have experienced trauma as a result of um, the AIDS epidemic. And as we look at World AIDS Day, we also um, experienced trauma and we lost partners, friends, and family. Um, and today we remember those we lost uh, and we face our own hardships, uh, including things like survivor's guilt, depression, and loneliness. So the Aging Well community brings people together who are living with and affected by HIV. And so it's great to be part of this program tonight in remembrance of World AIDS Day. Thank you. Thank you. Next, I'd like to introduce Brian Taylor. Hello. Let's see. Um, I have been HIV positive since 1995, so a little over 25 years. Um, I'm also a, uh, a retired registered nurse. I uh, was a, a nurse for over 30 years, primarily in the HIV and STD clinic. Um, I started working for Multnomah County in 1985, and um, I was at work actually when I tested positive. So that's how I found out. So um, I can talk more about that, but this is just introduction. So that's my introduction, and uh, I'll I'll leave it at that. Thank you. Um, next, I would like to introduce Marla Allen. Hi, um, I am, a, I live in California. I'm a native of California. I live in San Francisco. And besides writing, I um, am a small business owner where um, I create unique handmade reusable products from repurposed materials so that eco-conscious uh, people can collectively create, uh, create a cleaner world today and for future generations. So that's where most of my time um, is spent these days and um, learning how to do fashion design. Those are my passions right now. Thank you. Thank you. Um, and next, I would like to introduce David Rutheiser. Hi, Emma. Thank you so much for having us on your show yet again. Uh, yeah, I'm David Rutheiser. Uh, I'm originally from the Chicago area. I've lived here in uh, Portland, Oregon since 1987. Uh, I'm a poet, actor, writer, dancer, folk dancer, educator, and um, I sort of wound up starting what became December 1st Writers, I guess, kind of coincidentally, I wound up uh, introducing the people to each other, the, the, the core of us, of, of whom became eventually December 1st Writers, and uh, we've been giving... Uh, readings and presentations since 2013 uh, on how AIDS has impacted our lives personally. Um, yeah, and that's me. Um, thank you. Thank you. And next I'd like to introduce Sylvia Zingzer. Yes, thank you, uh, Emma. Uh, my name is Sil uh, Sylvia Zingzer. Um, I lost a son to AIDS in 1992. Um, I had started writing, uh, trying to get the conversations down that he and I had before he died, because I knew I was going to really miss those conversations. And uh, I did write a book of poetry and self-published called Scared of That's. Uh, and I will read a, a piece of that at this time of year. Uh, is always, um, he died in October, 
And then World AIDS Day is the 1st of December. So this is a special time of year for me. Thank you. Thank you. And I'd also like to introduce Pat Vivian. Uh, thank you, Emma, for having us. Um, we have read on your show before and really appreciated it, uh, being able to uh, share our journey. Um, I'm a, a writer, a poet, uh, made my living as a technical writer and editor. Um, and I moved to Portland from the Midwest with my best friend from college who was gay. And uh, so the first people that I got to know out here when I moved to Portland were gay and they became my community. I'm happily married, I'm straight, but my first heart family in Portland was gay. And when they got AIDS, I ended up helping to take care of three of them and uh, several lost several friends. Uh, so thank you for having us, Emma. Thank you. Thank you so much. So the format of tonight's show is uh, first uh, the first half of our show, we're going to be talking with long-term survivors of HIV. We're going to be talking with Brian and Craig. And I might also ask Marla if Marla would care to share a little bit of her story with us as well. And we have one other person who's going to join us uh, later to tell her story as well. Uh, during the second half of the show, we're going to be talking with the December 1st writers who do writing um, and performing uh, around the subject of HIV and uh, their loved ones um, and their own personal experiences. Um, so welcome everyone. Thank you so much for joining us um, on this day of uh, remembrance, uh, World AIDS Day, and also this day of celebration. So I'd like to start with Brian. Um, Brian, uh, I would love it if you would share with us a little bit of your story. So I guess I'll start, um, uh, as I said, where I work, because that's where I found out about uh, um, being positive and uh, sort of everything rolls around that. So I worked for Multnomah County Health Department for 28 years, as I says in the, uh, in the STD clinic. And that's where I started um, my HIV career because I started doing the counseling and testing as, as one of the nurses in the STD clinic. Um, that at this, that time, and I think it was about 1987, um, there was about one place in the whole state that you could uh, get an HIV test. And that was in the health department uh, here in Portland. And there was one person doing the, uh, um, doing the anonymous testing and obviously that wasn't going to be sustainable for uh, any period of time as more and more people uh, wanting, wanted the test. Um, even though the, uh, the local AIDS uh, organization, Cascade AIDS Project, was not encouraging people to get uh, testing at the time, um, which is an interesting you know, factoid of, the, of our history. Um, but we offered that test and uh, I started doing that test along with one of the other nurses. And so I did that for the first two, uh, last two years of uh, working at the STD clinic until the HIV clinic opened up in 1990 and I transferred there. Um, I still, uh, you know, I was doing testing pretty regularly on myself and, um, you know, I would just have somebody draw the blood and that's what happened in 1995, uh, drawing the blood. and. I would usually just call and, and get the results of anybody who had a test or had a, an appointment that day. So I had the power to actually call myself and find out my test result. So that's how I found out somebody, uh, a, a technician telling me. So I didn't have any counseling or testing or anything like that. Um, that was a pretty rough, rough year. I said that was in 1995. Uh, I had a very, very close friend, one of my best friends. Um, who, um, who died two weeks after I found out I was positive. So I found out I was positive on October 15th of 1995, and he passed away on October 30th of that same year. Mm -hmm. So um, it was, um, you know, um, it was kind of a rough period of time, and, and then it got even rougher. Um, I usually go down to 
uh, Sacramento, where I, I, I grew up. I, I went to high school there for Thanksgiving. So I went down to visit my father and my stepmother. And my father was real sick. You know, he had, he'd had chronic asthma for a long time. And um, I just thought he had, talk, you know, uh, some respiratory illness. So, but he was having trouble breathing. So I took him to the hospital and they admitted him to the hospital and he died that, that night. So it was not having a very good two two months, but uh, uh, those all things, you know, sort of came down on me in one year. And it was so it was a, a very, very difficult year. But as you can see, I survived and um, I uh, retired from the county uh, HIV clinic uh, after a very successful career. And I worked um, for additional five years on call at the Kaiser HIV clinic. So um, uh, I've had a long and successful career in HIV and now I'm enjoying my retirement. So that is my story. Thank you, Brian. Um, um, Craig, we've had a chance to hear Brian's story. Um, I would love it now if you could share some of your story. Thanks, Emma. I'm going to start um, in 1981. So I, when we first learned about this, this cancer, this disease, we didn't know what it was, but I had just started college. And uh, so I was about to embark on a college career. I was the first person in my family to go to college. And I just was excited about leaving home, explore my sexuality. And right when I started college, we started hearing about people getting sick. And um, so it brought a lot of fear um, as a, a young person, 18, uh, starting college in 1981. I had some friends early on that I went to high school with that went to other colleges across the country and who wound up getting sick um, right away. And um, and so I've lost many, many friends and family and long-term partners to AIDS. And I also have a lot of um, long-term HIV survivors who I call friend and friends and who are part of our community right now through CAP. Um, so again, college was a time of fear, of uncertainty, um, you know, getting through college, um, I started feeling uh, survivor guilt, like why, why wasn't this happening to me? And it was happening to people I cared about and loved. Um, I wound up graduating from college, um, worked on a master's degree, and then decided I was gonna move to Oregon. So in 1989, I moved uh, from Chicago, the Chicago area, moved to Oregon, actually started volunteering with CAP right away in 1989. So the organization was pretty young. It was a grassroots organization and a lot of, lot of just grassroots support, people taking people to doctor's appointments. Um, there wasn't a lot of large scale events or organizations, but we did a lot of supporting people who were at various stages of their, um, their journey and um, so got involved at CAP. And so it's really interesting now, 30 years late, over 30 years later, working for the organization where I started volunteering in the late 80s. I also had my older cousin who was three years older than me died in 1991. And he really was like an older brother to me. We, um, lived with lived um, in two houses that were adjoined by a backyard and he was my cousin but really he was my older brother um, and he moved to LA um, had a wonderful job with United Airlines and wound up getting sick and died of AIDS in 1991 so while I was in Oregon I spent a lot of time going down to LA to be with him and support him and unfortunately, he was in a situation where even though he had some good friends down there, the support he was getting was not 
very helpful. And so he made the decision to move back to Chicago uh, and be with his family. Well, his family didn't take him in. And so actually a former partner of his moved back to Chicago from LA and wound up having him come and live with him before he died. And um, so I spent many times going back and forth from Portland to LA, but then from Portland to Chicago um, and to see my, my brother die at 33 years old. Um, so that was really um, tremendous thing. And then over the years, just friends I developed and relationships I developed in Oregon, you know, going to homes and sitting with people and just um, trying to be supportive and then seeing CAP grow as um, things evolved and changed was really interesting as a volunteer. And then I lost touch with CAP for a while, um, but then I wound up meeting a gentleman who was a long-term survivor and um, got his diagnosis in 1983 and lived until uh, 2020. So uh, again, 41 years with HIV and died during um, COVID and, um, and was his caretaker for many years, um, went and um, as his medicine, as his meds changed, was involved in helping him with his, um, but he, he lived a full life and retired from the Oregon Health Authority at 58 um, and then wound up living till he was 79. Um, and just, you know, died of um, natural causes, um, had a heart attack. Um, but again, so many people that I've lost, but now so many people that I've also um, supported who are living and thriving um, and are aging. And how do, we, you know, how do we age well? So our community really is about how do we stay well how do we live well? How are we advocates for each other and support each other? I think the COVID pandemic really moved us all into isolation and loneliness. So we've come out of that and we're starting to, to gather as a community again in person. So, um, you know, again, it's been from 1981 to each year when we, when we remember those we've lost and those who are thriving it's a really beautiful time to um, reflect on and to see the progress we're making, but also to remember those we've lost. Thank you. Thank you. Um, we are talking today with um, the December 1st writers and also with long-term survivors of HIV. Um, December 1st uh, coming up is World AIDS Day. And this is an annual show we host on Trans Positive to uh, both mourn and to celebrate the lives of people with HIV, as well as those who have passed away. I'd also like to ask Marla Allen if she would like to speak. Uh, Marla is both a long-term survivor of HIV and a member of the December 1st Writers. So Marla, I would just ask you if you care to, uh, to share your story. I would love to, thank you. Um, so I was born in Los Angeles and moved to San Francisco in 1986 when I was 23, and I was completely devastated at watching my community thin out so quickly, and I wanted to do something, anything to help. So in April of 1988, I, I took a 50-hour intensive training over two weekends to be an emotional support volunteer for this organization called Shanti. Um, that's that um, is a support to people with HIV. They still exist today. Uh, I wanted to comfort people with AIDS, so I took the the um, training in April, and then in nineteen um, in June of that same year, um, while I was working at a law firm, um, a a guy in a, uh, the mailroom, David, um, wanted me to give he and his boyfriend a ride to the testing center to get tested for HIV. And I said, sure, I'd had a car. So I said, sure, I'll take them. 
Um, but to make me an appointment too, because I was I didn't want to be bored and wait in the car. Well, I wouldn't have asked if I would have known that it was going to be po- I was going to be positive. I would have just skipped the whole thing. But um, I uh, I tested positive and they didn't, and they're like, "Oh my God, that's our disease." That's what they told me. That's our disease. You can't be positive. But anyway. So um, I started out um, being really active and speaking to kids and adults in the 1980s and 90s, mostly to educate about AIDS, but also to try to uh, attempt to reduce the stigma that was attached. Um, I was in um, my support groups were with gay men because there were no groups for women at that time. And that's where I met Sylvia's son, Aaron, and ultimately Sylvia. So basically, um, COVID, us living with HIV, COVID was our second pandemic. So it was just so familiar. Everything about it was just so familiar. And I got really depressed. And I'm in a support group now, actually through Shanti, um, where mostly we talk less about HIV and more about aging issues. So that's, that's my story, basically. Thank you. We're talking now with Judith Rizzio, who helped to organize the show this past summer at the Oregon Historical Society, documenting 40, 40 years of HIV survivorship. Judith, welcome to Transpositive. Thank you. It's, it's, it's a real treat to be here. So Judith, we've talked with long-term survivors of HIV, and we're going to be talking in just a minute with members of the December 1st Writers can you tell me your story? Yes, um, it goes back a ways because um, it's important to hear early on, um, I came upon this strange disease and this incredible cultural shift in my community. I am bisexual and it is my family. And I, um, because my first friend died in 1977, of course we didn't know what was going on. Uh, he was a part of a um, theater group called the United Fruit Company out of San Francisco. And I was in a political theater company as well and training with the San Francisco Mine Troop down there. And and it hit so hard, of course, the community, especially in the Castro. And we just didn't know what was going on. Um, and so early on, within the first, uh, you know, of course, from 79, through 85, it was just what's going on, you know, what's happening. And um, I was uh, also realizing that no one was talking about what was going on. I mean, as we know, Reagan didn't even say the word until I think it was something like 86 or or whatever, and uh, already over 38,000 predominantly gay men had already died. But with that said, um, that sort of began my journey. And then I got the opportunity in 1989 to help open um, our house of Portland. Um, And when I say open, I didn't create it. I didn't find it. You know, I wasn't a founder, but um, the building that they're in now, well, it was rebuilt, but the location where it is now, I helped move um the five residents that were in the actual house into the new facility that housed had 12 beds and so very early on um besides my friends who were dying from this at this point in in droves it was it was mind-boggling i got the opportunity to work there as the director of volunteers and then i switched into eventually into the um director of community relations and while I was there, I was I was there 17 years. I watched um, over 400 people. Uh, again, mostly m- many young um, gay men, and of course some women. Um, you know, at the end stage of their life um, with um, HIV. And I also was a part of an amazing, I can't emphasize this enough. And for all of you out there that have been a part of the journey, being providers and helpers and mothers and fathers and loved ones and spouses and daughters and all the people that lived and worked through this with their loved ones, um, watching these amazing people do the work that had to be done because other people weren't doing it. And I just need to do a shout out, especially to act, um, act up um, and and the radicalism of their work. If they weren't out there, 
just making good trouble, um, you know, and uh, we wouldn't be where we are right now with some of the benefits that occurred and thanks to them. But with all that said, that was a part of what I did. And I was a part of being the community relations person and on every board you can imagine. Um, and and it was it was a, a really fantastic work because I got to see every day what people were doing to try to deal with this. And then um, I moved from that work to Cascade AIDS Project. And of course now they're both merged, uh, which is delightful. And I worked there eight years and uh, again, um, had an, an amazing experience um, doing that work um, there. And uh, during that time, um, I was, it's a great story. I was with a group of my workers and we had a cleanup two hours one day, meaning, okay, everyone, put your phones on hold, even your work phones, clean up your desk, clean up your area, let's get, you know, ship shape. And it was very fun, you know, working at CAP, it was hard, both places were hard, but I wanna tell you something, boy, did we not have fun and party. Because we realized what was in front of us and realized, you know what, at the same time, you need to remember to live and celebrate no matter where you are in, in that lifeline, right? And anyway, with that said, we were cleaning up and I went into this area and I saw predominantly young workers, and this is not an ageist thing, it's just had to do with technology. And I saw them literally throwing away recycling, um, ephemera and papers and posters and things that were like, and I literally went, stop, <laughs> do not throw that away. Um, and I said, I'll pick it up, just put it in the bins, I'll pick it up. This is important stuff. This is our history. This is do not throw that away. And they were like, oh, you can scan it, you know, just, you know, we don't need this stuff. And I said, oh, no, 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 you know. So I did do that. And the next day I went to Michael Kaplan, the ED of executive director of Cascade AIDS Project, one of my most favorite uh, people and activists and uh, amazing man. Anyway, he um, met with me. Well, actually, I sort of walked into his office with, with a bunch of boxes and I said, so listen, Michael, I know this is not my job, but you're going to need to let me do this. I want to create an archive so this stuff doesn't go away. And you need to give me a little bit of money and four hours a week. And I promise it will only take one year, but I want to create a HIV AIDS archive for Oregon, especially using CAP stuff, but everyone. And he agreed. Uh, reluctantly. Of course, it took not one year, but five years. Um, but I had the amazing experience of putting, thank you, Marty uh, Davis, the amazing one, person who did, you know, did just out when we had actually a hard magazine that we got to read um, every week. Anyway, sh uh, paper. She agreed to put a free ad in saying, bring your archive materials to CAP and to be a part of this archive. And the first year, mothers, fathers, loved ones would come with boxes or photos or a t-shirt or, I mean, and, and I got to experience them a lot of times with tears in their eyes or, I mean, handing me over this amazing history, including ACT UP um, had a friend um, who put it in their basement, all of their archives, and he found it and Jack Cox was the um, fantastic uh, radical. And he brought it to and said, look at Judith, he was a good friend. He said, you know, it's been in my basement. I know it's not Cap, I know it's not our house. You know, I know I'm not, do you want it? I'm like, hell yeah. So I took that as well. And I created um, an archive along with a very important person, Alan Giles, Alan Giles. He was, believe it or not, he was a um, archivist, professional archivist that showed up two weeks after I was allowed saying I could do this, not knowing about the archive, saying he wanted to volunteer at CAP. And I said, well, what would you like to do? He goes, well, my background is being an archivist, but you probably don't need that. And I almost like fainted, you know, I was like, did you hear that I'm doing this? And he said, no. And he, he moved here with his uh, husband and we worked together for five years and created this um, amazing history of our not just people with HIV and you know the segment but of our history Oregon's history of HIV which is a part of our history 
And I did not want that to be forgotten. And so I had the honor and the, uh, the support to do that. So that's just a segment of, of, of what I did. Um, Hi, this is Emma. I am a co-host of Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio and also the president of the board of directors of KBOO. And I just want to take a quick break here um, during Giving Tuesday to remind you that uh, kboo.fm slash give is the place to go if you'd like to make a donation today on Giving Tuesday. Um, at KBOO, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. This Giving Tuesday, let your friends and family know that you believe that community radio matters. Join thousands of supporters of KBOO from all around the world. Let's rally together to build a stronger community. Help us meet our end-of-the-year membership drive goal of $70,000. We're community-funded, so we need your support to get there. Just go to kboo.fm slash give or text KBOO to this number, 44321. Thank you. So again, we're talking with uh, long-term survivors of HIV tonight um, in both memory and in celebration of World AIDS Day, which is uh, coming up on December 1st in just a couple of days. Um, <clears throat> we're gonna transition now to the second part of our show. We're gonna be talking with members of the December 1st Writers. The December 1st Writers was started um, in response to World AIDS Day. And it includes both uh, survivors of HIV, uh, loved ones who had family members and friends who passed away from HIV, uh, sharing their poetry and their prose um, around the theme of World AIDS Day. And I'd like to have uh, David Rutheiser uh, introduce himself and maybe tell us a little bit about the December 1st writers and then read his first poem. So yeah, I'm David Rutheiser, and um, in terms of December 1st writers, uh, I, rem I, I remember Sylvia asking me, and she and I have known each other since um, 1988 through folk dancing, actually. Um, so I was 20 years old at the time, no, 19. And I remember she had approached me and she asked me if I was gonna, you know, what I was planning to do for uh, for World AIDS Day. Um, at that time, I didn't really even know when World AIDS Day was. And she said, well, I just, um, I would really like to do something to remember Erin Arney by her, her son. And so, um, Almost by happenstance, I wound up. Um, Marla had come to town, and Sylvia and Marla and I were at a reading at Powell's uh, with Paul Ann Peterson, who was then, I believe, the, the poet laureate of the state of Oregon, and, and Pat was there, so I introduced Pat. And Pat had been writing uh, poems about taking care of her friends who had died of AIDS, like way back in the 1980s um, when I first started hanging around the Portland poetry scene. So um, we got together. Um, I think the first that first year we read at um, the Ainsworth Church on Northeast 30th and Ainsworth, which houses the uh, HIV Day Center. Um, and we made it by donation only. Um, Sylvia brought a stack of her books that she'd written. All the money we raised, we donated to HIV Day Center, and that that was the beginning of it. So um, 
yeah, um, it's kind of my, it's my recollection of how we started. Um, so this is um, for me. This is a coming out poem. It's um, more about me reckoning with my um, orientation and just with the realization that I was different. Uh, and it's called, um, oh, and sadly, it's still quite relevant because of the the violence that we still face. Um, and this is called, I Am 12, Chelmsford, Massachusetts, 1980. One morning, I hear the innocent songs of birds from my mother's kitchen radio because John Lennon has been shot. Why would someone want to kill him? All he did was be a beetle and write the song about imagining no war. The rumor I hear is he signed an autograph too quickly. Soon, President Reagan also gets shot. We watch it on TV at school. And then a therapist in our town. The TV news says that the killer is still on the loose. Could he be in our neighborhood? Days later, the TV news tells us his car has been found somewhere up in New Hampshire and in the woods, feet away, his dead body. They say he had been angry at the therapist. I haven't yet heard of Harvey Milk and won't until adulthood when I'll realize the word gay does mean me. So a singer could become famous, and I too sing and write songs. I too imagine no war. I imagine a lot of things. I am 12. So the key, it seems to me, is to not be too well known or sign any autographs or make anyone angry. Maybe, just maybe, I stand a chance to survive if no one notices me. So I have a another short poem. Uh, I, I sang um, a one-man interactive music variety program for almost 15 years to seniors in assisted living and memory care communities and for almost three years to kids. And so this comes from my experience singing to seniors and um, watching how they dealt with illness. And this is called Recoveries. Somehow the container of leftover pasta salad my friends made for the potluck slid beneath my passenger seat. And by the time I remembered, a moldy fuzz ringed the mushrooms and the pasta's spiral sagged into their murky juice. And now it's happened again. Diane's dillweed, fresh from her patio at the nursing home, found still sitting in my fanny pack, withered in a crumpled paper towel. Even after she gave us each a sniff and said, you know, somewhere, someone with cancer could just smell this and want to eat. Thank you. That was David Rutheiser with the Deborah, December 1st Writers. Uh, you're listening to Transpositive here on KBOO Community Radio. Tonight we're both celebrating and remembering the lives of those who were lost, as well as those who have survived um, on World AIDS Day, which is uh, coming up in just a couple of days on December 1st. I'd like to introduce um, Sylvia uh, Zingazer next. Uh, Sylvia, your son passed away of HIV. I didn't have a chance to ask you to share his story, uh, but I just wanted to give you a couple of minutes to share hmm. that, if you would. And then also to read a poem or two. Thank you, Emma. Um, 
I realized that um, my son was likely going to have AIDS. I was a medical technologist working at Kaiser Permanente, Best Kaiser Hospital, when I saw a CDC form come through talking about this uh, new disease. And I went to, uh, there was an invitation that was um, being given in Portland um, at the Holiday Park out by the, uh, Holiday Inn out by the um, uh, airport. And I went to that. Uh, it was mainly for doctors and nurses. And um, it was um, telling doctors and nurses there were two gay men who were, I don't know if they were from the State Board of Health, but they got up and they explained what was happening. And I knew at that point that at some, uh, I, would, I, I would hear that my son probably would be infected. And the first thing that I, I did for him, because one of the things that I knew is that a lot of the people who were dying had had hepatitis B. And uh, I got him into the doctor and had him uh, vaccinated for hepatitis B. I don't know if that made it worse or if that made it better or um, extended his life or not. Uh, he, he tested positive. Uh, in 1986 it was and um, he um, he kind of looked at life as uh, he would be gone within two years and so he sort of left led, led his life that in two years he would be he would be gone so uh, I, I think what I'll do is uh, he, he died in 1992 I think what I will do is read the poem of of um, when he was, um, when things were, were changing and he was living by two more years and then it was by two more weeks. Three AIDS poems, two more weeks. Two more weeks and I'll be gone, two more weeks and I'll be dead. Phone calls pour in from Minneapolis, St. Paul, New York, Seattle, Portland, Miami, Houston, Palm Springs, San Diego, England, Israel, and France, and he tells his friends goodbye. They still call week after week to see if he's alive. Neuropathy and polymyopathy have settled in his feet, in his legs, his hips, in his joints, until he can no longer walk. In a monster hospital bed that makes it easier for us to care for him, he decides to let go. No more pills that make him sick, make his stomach churn. For what, six more months of life? Another year, maybe two? No way, he says, not me. I'll be dead in two more weeks. And two more weeks. A person's body, you'd think, would certainly succumb, confined to a bed with no medication for pneumonia or food to eat. Only Roxanol and MS Cotton, both morphine meds for pain, Valium to make the anxiety tolerable. A cyclovir to keep herpes from resurfacing all over his body. Fluconazole for that cotton-like yeast called thrush, which would otherwise take over the mouth and the throat. All this he washes down with a cocktail of juice, papaya, mango, guava, and ginger ale. You'd think, that two weeks was more than adequate for a PWA to die. For three months, every week, he told his friends goodbye until one week I said to him, my son, your body is stronger than you, we thought. Your spirit is not ready to take you away. It could be that you will live beyond the next two weeks, and God forbid you should live another month or two or three. I know you are ready to depart but only your spirit will know when it's time. And weeks and weeks and weeks. For three more months he lay and waited with eyes open, watching as the mornings dissolved the blackened night into gray and the gray into the light of day. Doves pulled their heads out from under their wings, fluttered about and then took flight from a tall pine outside his window. He talked less and less on the phone with his friends, and those who dropped by stayed only moments. 
To all of them, he said goodbye, and he told them, I won't be dead. I'll just be gone. Thank you so much. Marla, you are both a long-term survivor of HIV and uh, a writer with the December 1st Writers. You've written a prose piece. I was wondering if you could share that with us now. Yes, thanks, Emma. Um, so my name is Marla, and as you know by now, I'm considered a long-term survivor since I was diagnosed with HIV in 1988. These days, HIV AIDS is no longer the disease du jour, but as an aging community, we face other issues, sometimes HIV-related and sometimes not. I'd like to share with you now a story about me and my friend Maya. Maya and I met in 1992 at a world retreat one of the few HIV services for women in the San Francisco Bay Area at that time. WORLD is an acronym for Women Organized to Respond to Life-Threatening Diseases, and they had these fun annual retreats in the forest for HIV-positive women. It was my second retreat, and Maya had just been diagnosed, so this was her first. We were both 27 years old. After that retreat, Maya and I became fast friends and had a ton of fun together. We had lots, lots in common, including the fact that we were going to die soon. Maya was angry, angry because she'd always wanted to be a mother and now she would never get that chance. The first time we met, she shared with me an image of herself in the future, old and feeble, rocking back and forth in a rocking chair, a handmade, a handmade crocheted blanket draped over her lap, a swarm of her little grandchildren playing at her feet. After some trial and error, Maya married the sweetest man on the planet. They moved into a custom home in an affluent neighborhood in the hills of the Bay Area. A few years later, she gave birth to a handsome little son who never, ever cried. And several years after that, they had a little daughter just as gorgeous as her mother. Maya's dream came true. Her children grew into highly intelligent and happy adults and inherited her inner and outer beauty. True to life's duality, Maya um, also had more hurdles than the average person. Several years ago, Maya's teenage daughter discovered her mother acting odd and called an ambulance, a call that saved Maya's life as she was diagnosed with a brain aneurysm. Maya had to learn to do many things over again while she was in rehab, like walk, and she did eventually recover. Last month, Maya and I had an hour-long, much overdue telephone catch-up when she told me she'd been diagnosed with liver cancer that had metastasized to her brain. I thought about the many curveballs life had thrown at my dear friend. After all she'd been through, she was still super excited about beginning a medication regimen that, may, that remained hopeful and remained hopeful for a complete recovery. At the end of our conversation, as we were saying goodbye, I told her I loved her, for which I'm so grateful because that was the last time we ever spoke. Maya passed away last week. Yesterday, I attended her funeral service. You can tell a lot about someone by their funeral. The church was packed. Maya had more close friends than anyone I've ever known. To all who knew Maya, she was a beacon of love, strength, hope, kindness, and faith. Her memory will forever remain in the hearts of many, including mine. Light up heaven, my friend. Thank you. And Pat, um, are you prepared to share any poems with us tonight? Um, on uh, the subject? Yeah, yes, I am. I, I'm going back and forth between two poems. One of them is an AIDS poem. Um, my friend Tom and his partner John had moved to San Francisco uh, when he got AIDS. And they both had it. John died a year after Tom did. And so I spent a lot of time in San Francisco uh, taking care of Tom so that John could catch a break. And uh, I'll read a poem about that experience. This is called Love's Gravity. John laces his fingers through Tom's hair, soft as a child's tallow halo, where Tom's head meets the pillow. It is not their final parting, not yet. John is holding him. John carries Tom, the steaming bowl of oatmeal, helps him over the rug so he won't fall, plumps the comforter as Tom settles into the couch 
waking slowly, an old man of 35 wrapped in a thin cotton robe. Last year, John's father died of cancer. While John packs his duffel, he's talking to me, scratching himself fiercely, arms, back, chest, shoulders, then his arms again, showing me the signs, where the medications are and how often, how far Tom can walk, the doctor's phone number, the outpatient clinic, the emergency ward. The door closes behind John softly without conclusion. I'll take care of Tom while John goes to the river, his eyes dark and broody. Tom tells me the blue rope belonged to John's father. He says this proudly. We play another rounder. Do you remember the time we climbed that narrow juniper that dangled over the Grand Canyon and swung our legs into emptiness, laughing at nothing above it all? Nothing is promised. Their names, Tom and John, aren't engraved on the ground. They both could outlive me. And that was true at the time I wrote it, but it's obviously not true now. And now, if we have time for this, I'll read a short poem that I just wrote yesterday. It's not an AIDS poem, but I believe we have an epidemic of poverty in this country after so many years of outsized Republican influence. Uh, so this poem is called Next Door. There is a woman in a wheelchair cooking a gobble of turkeys to serve Thanksgiving dinner to the homeless. When her chair wore out, it took a GoFundMe account to raise money for repairs and get her rolling again. There's a man living in a tent who works full time in middle management at Home Depot. Poverty in America is a full time job and then some. There are no benefits and no pay for overtime. Thank you, Emma, for having us. Thank you. Um, we've been talking tonight with Pat Vivian, Brian Taylor, Craig, David Rutizer, Marla Allen, Sylvia Zingazer. Um, is there anything that any of you would like to share uh, toward the end of our program, just as final thoughts? There was one thing that I was thinking about when I was talking about the uh, the circle that uh, we had once a month. <clears throat> and that was an article that appeared in the Bay Area Reporter, or actually it was the front page of the Bay Area Reporter, I believe in either 96 or 97. And um, up until that time, uh, the medications that we were using um, were successful only up to a point. And so a lot of people were still dying. And, um, but they, uh, the medications that we had were increasingly getting better and better and better. And so in, I believe it was either 96 or 97, uh, the front page of the Bay Area Reporter in giant letters said, no obituaries today. And uh, I have that somewhere. I think I'm gonna put it up and frame it because that was um, when everything changed. And uh, that was a marker, a benchmark time period uh, when we had medications that actually worked and that people stopped dying. I guess the other thing that is important to me was um, realizing uh, the amount of people who left us way, way too early um, and what that did. Um, being a, a theater person and in the arts, uh, the decimation of, of some of the most amazing people um, was brutal during that time. And that loss was amazing, but also the tenacity um, of those that um, held on and those fortunate enough along the way that when the drug regimens came along, you know, in 96, um, that's when there were trials and then in 97, you know, they were for everyone. It was, it was unbelievable to watch within months, people literally move out of our house 
Um, and I remembered uh, in 93, it was the worst year here in Oregon of deaths. And um, I remember one day, one 24 hour period, three people died. Um, and, you know, it was like a, a, a rotating door of people coming in and, and, and leaving um, us. But anyway, um, and my life to this day is filled with, I mean, I get very emotional talking about this. Um, people like Jim Clay and those amazing survivors um, and men, women of all ages that are thriving and still doing amazing work in the field or not. And um, which is such a good thing. It's just such a good thing. Thank you. Thank you, Judith, so much. Thank you for sharing your story with us. Uh, thank you so much. And, and I, I just got to say, um, I can't say enough about Kebu and the um, dedication, collaboration, and commitment they've made to telling um, the HIV AIDS story and, 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 and my story and others. And so I want to thank you. Thank you very much, Kebu. And to you, Gemma, for um, doing this for all of us. Hi, this is Emma. Um, I just want to thank you so much for listening to the World AIDS Day show here on TransPositive. Um, I am a co-host of TransPositive, and I'm also the current president of the board of directors here at KBU. And I just want to remind you that today is Giving Tuesday. Um, at KBU, we prove every day that people-powered radio has the ability to bring us together across distances and give us hope when we feel despair. Today on Giving Tuesday, your friends at KBU want to remind you that generosity has the same power. Join thousands of KBU supporters from all around the world, and let's rally together to build stronger communities. Our goal for this year is $70,000. Um, we'd like 